If you guys would please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. If you've got Bibles, if you have Bibles on your phone, you can like scroll there. And actually, you don't need to do any of that if you'd rather just look up here and we'll have most of the stuff that we have on the screen. And um, But whatever is most comfortable for you, that would be totally fine. So we are, Lord willing, in the last... Uh, message of, of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And I thought we were going to get out of this last week, but we didn't. And so um, so we actually have a little bit more work to do, and I'm super excited about it. Um, I, uh, I just wanted to... Um, I think I'm going to wait a little bit later into the message before we get there. Um, but yeah, let's open up to 1 Corinthians 5. And we're going to start... If we could pull up that verse, I'm going to, I'm going to start um, halfway through, I think it's verse, that ends up being verse 7. So we'll just start there in just a second, Brando, and we'll read that. But before we get started, I'm just going to remind you guys of what we've been doing in this chapter. So this is one of the like strangest chapters in the New Testament, uh, because there's a crazy situation going on at this church. Everybody in this room who's been here the last couple weeks knows about it. In the situation Paul's dealing with in this church, a, a guy has... Uh, become intimate in a relationship with his stepmom. And Paul is trying to talk to this church about this situation. He's been trying to deal with it for a long time. This is the second letter that he's written and tried to deal with the situation. The church is not responding. He wants, this guy is not turning away from that. He's not repenting of it. And it's, it's, it's making a mockery of the church in the community of non-believers around them. They're looking at this and they're saying, this is crazy. And Paul says, not even... Not even the people who don't follow Christ engage in this kind of thing, this in-law incest. And, and finally, it's gotten to the point where Paul is saying, get this guy out of the church. Excommunication. It's the severest form of church discipline that there is. And it's a very sort of strange situation. But what we've been doing through this in the last couple of weeks, if you haven't been listening to these messages, and maybe if you have, I'll be reminding you, is we've been trying to, and that, that first message I talked about, Columbo, he, he looks at all these little clues in the, in the Columbo TV shows and he finds, you know, uh, a potato chip over here and he finds a fingernail over here and he finds uh, a cigarette that's half burned and shoelaces that are tied just the other way that they should be tied. And he puts together this amazing big picture from it all and he sees the big picture out of all these, these clues. And that's kind of how we've been trying to look at chapter five, looking at these strange situations that we've, we've never encountered and we're trying to say, What's the big picture? Like, what's the big picture of the church in the midst of this crisis for Corinth? And we've seen a few different big pictures here. We've seen the church as a bride, right? That Paul is saying, listen, Jesus is the husband of the church and he wants a pure bride. The church is called to be a beautiful bride to to her Lord. And in God's economy, beauty isn't skin deep. It's the inner beauty of the soul. He's looking for the holiness of his church. And so Paul's calling the church to purify itself from this evil in its midst, this incestuous relationship. And, and then he names other things that he wants the church to purify itself from. Greed and uh, being a people who put their hope in possessions and never have enough. Swindling, uh, mistreating their workers and exploiting labor and uh, cheating people out of money. And they're slandering and he's, he's calling them to stop spreading falsehoods and judging one another. 
And uh, he calls them away from idolatry. That'll come up again later in the book. And sexual immorality, obviously, which is the, the chief subject he's dealing with at the top of chapter 5. And then, Paul, we looked at this. We looked at a second picture. So we looked at church as the bride, calling for purity. We looked at a second picture, the church as the body, the body of Christ. The church is God's hands and feet and voice and eyes and ears on this earth. The church is the body of Christ is to do exactly what Jesus did when he was on earth. When Jesus was on earth, he had a body. When he went back to heaven and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, his body left the earth. But he put his spirit, his Holy Spirit, in his people to be his body on earth. And so the church was to act as the voice of Christ, his throat, his, his vocal cords. With the authority of Christ, they were to proclaim to this man... You can't live like this anymore and be in our community. They were to proclaim the saving love of Christ even in rescuing this man from his situation. This was not only for the purity of the church, but it was for the salvation of this straying man. Because just as Jesus saves and saved when he was on earth, so the church is to be an instrument, a means of God's salvation because they're his body on earth to do his saving work for him through his spirit. So we saw church as bride, church as body, and now we're going to look at this final picture. The church as the light. Church is the light of Christ. Or to put it in more in the, in the more common phraseology we're used to, the church is the light of the world. And so this idea of the church being a light comes from Matthew 5. I'm using a term that's all the way back in the, in the gospel of Matthew. And there Jesus proclaims to the church, listening to him teach, he says to them all, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light on a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's really what Paul is going to say in a sense today. In an implicit way in this passage, he's going to say, you don't put a lamp under a bushel. You put a lamp on a stand so it can give light to others in the house. He's not going to be as direct as that, but it's going to be, it's going to be implicit in what he's saying. And that's what we're going to draw out in that sort of Columbo way I talked about. We're taking some of these hints and we're saying, what's this big picture of the church we're looking at? Church as bride and her purity. The church as body acting for Christ on earth, and now the church as light, proclaiming who he is, proclaiming a witness to the world. Before we get into this, church as light, I need prayer. So would you guys pray with me and ask the Lord to bless his word and bless our hearts to hear it well? Let's go to him. Lord, I need help. We need help. Everybody in this room needs help. Lord, we've got one life to live. It is a vapor. It is a mere hand breath, as David says, I think in Psalm 39. Lord, we're like the grass that sprouts up in the morning. The sun rises, the wind blows on it, and it is no more. We don't want to waste a second this morning. Because we're with you. We're, we're before your Holy Spirit in your presence. We've already sung to you, heard from you, prayed to you, listened to, Lord, a prophetic word from you. Lord, we want to keep on engaging with you. Lord, I thank you so much that we have these hopes, we have the desires, 
We can wonder if you want to talk to us, if you're going to act. We don't have to keep wondering. We can just look at Jesus Christ. We can look what he's done for us. 2,000 years ago on that hill on Calvary, bearing all of our punishment, bearing all of our blame on that day 2,000 years ago so that on this day, 2,000 years later, we could know we have your help. In Christ, you have removed every reason why you would not help us today. Every problem with us that would judge us, that would take away your love from us, he took it away and he threw it as far as from the east as the west. And now we can say with boldness, because you command us to say it with boldness, to ask like your children with boldness, Lord, help, bless. And so, Lord, I pray Holy Spirit, breathe your breath on your word and make it life to our souls today. And, and Lord, protect my brothers and sisters and me from anything I say that's not in keeping with your truth. Burn up the chaff and let the wheat grow here. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. We thank you that you're here. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in the back half of this chapter, Paul's trying to clear a confusion among this church. And he says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. Oh, I'm sorry. I told you, Brando. We'd we'd start here. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I'm not going to go back into the festival. It'll be the third time we talk about Passover. But I really want to focus on what Paul's trying to say. Christ has been sacrificed, okay? We're going to come back to that later. Everything Paul is saying is coming from this place, this logical idea that, listen, Christ has been sacrificed. And so, everything that follows, right? Everything that follows is sourced in the fact that Christ has been sacrificed, And so, everything we'll read today. So Paul says here, next slide, thank you, Brando. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Brando, go go one more slide. Go one more slide. Go, 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 go. Go, go, go. Go, 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 buddy. Go, go, buddy, you're almost there. Keep going. Okay, all right. Try one more slide. We'll see what we get. There we go. Bingo. Okay. Thank you. I had to set up a little bit way and I I wasn't helping you along the way. Um, and, and you know what? You know how you, Brando or whoever's doing the slide prediction usually has my sermon, another copy of it back there. And here it is. It's right up here for you. So otherwise he'd be following along much better. But I just don't want to lend any more confusion to what's going on. That is not his fault. That's my fault. By the way, that man is amazing. He's been here, like, ever since I've been here serving Sunday after Sunday. Brando Minich. Thank you, buddy, so much. Thank you, Glenn. Not just that you guys serve, but you guys serve with so much joy and kindness and humility. And Marshall, you do too. Did you want some love and affection as well? Oh, okay. And you do such a great job too, buddy. Everybody loves you too, mister. Don't forget about you. Here you go. Marshall Stoy, ladies and gentlemen. All right, we're back on point. We're engaged in the game. We've got four minutes left. Just kidding. So Paul says here, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Stop right there. Now here's the misunderstanding. Paul clears it up. Not at all meaning 
the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. These guys had gotten it completely backwards. Okay, so Paul's trying to say, I'm not talking about the world. The implication here is significant. We're not, Paul's saying, to hide from the world. Nobody puts a lamp on a stand and then puts a towel over top of it. Paul's saying, you are to befriend the world. You are to love and open your lives to the world. Paul says the only alternative would be to leave the world. And for 2,000 years, in different ways, Christians have been at times trying to leave the world. Monasteries, abbeys, Christian communities where they inculcate themselves, which is not Christian at all, right? But that's never been God's plan for us. On the night Jesus was portrayed, he prays this prayer for his disciples. He knows he's going back to the Father, and Jesus has this to say to them. He's talking to God, and he says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they, his disciples, may have joy, my joy, made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And in the context, your word is the message about Jesus. So Jesus is saying, I've told them what you told me to tell you, that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior. And he says, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Then he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Here we see the Lord's intention, not just for his apostles, but for his church. We are kept in the world. God wants us kept from the evil of the world. And that's a difficulty, right? We live in a tension where we we live among a world that wants to tempt us away from God, to hate God, to not care about God. And, And not like us, oftentimes, hopefully. Not always because it's our fault. Sometimes it is. But he's saying, that's not what I came to do to keep you in your little huddle here. He says in the next verse, he explains in verse 20, rather, why Jesus has not done that. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The reason why Jesus doesn't want to take the apostles up to heaven with him is because there are going to be a lot of people who are going to need this message. And the apostles are going to have to stick around on earth and Deposit this message in people who can then deposit this message in people who can deposit this message in people. And we are in this room because 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't take his apostles with him. Right? I mean, that's true. Think about that. That's crazy. You guys are in this room listening to this word of God because Jesus left his apostles on earth instead of taking them up to heaven with him. It goes all the way back. To that night, that prayer. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He wants us unified in Christ, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may all be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So in other words, because others need to hear and believe the truth about Christ, Jesus leaves his apostles on earth. He leaves his messengers. He leaves his people on earth. And when they do hear the truth about Christ and come to Christ, then they will, if they're unified, if they're able to love each other, if they're able to stick it out with each other, they will become a compelling witness to the world of something the world does not know, which is faithful, undying, steadfast love one to another. Something the world often does not experience but desperately desires to experience. 
And when they see it going on in God's people, they know something is special. They know that that God is there, the God who is love, the God that in their heart of hearts they dream of, the God who would say, I will not let you go. And he shows up in his people as his people. Don't let each other go and keep loving and keep fighting to love each other. They become a witness of Christ because they look like Christ. That's the whole point. But this church in Corinth had gotten something completely backwards. They had done it exactly the opposite way. They were not purifying their church. They were not cleaning house. They were embracing something, Paul says, the world even knows this is wrong. So they're compromising their unity because they're contaminating it with this this terrible immoral relationship. And then, on top of that, they were closing their doors to the lost, to the people who don't have Christ. They're closing their lives off and judging people around them in a decisive way. People that Christ wants them lighting up in front of. Not in pride, but in love. So they did it backwards, right? And we can be tempted to do it backwards. We can be tempted to unintentionally inculcate ourselves to the point where we find, try to find our little heaven in our little faction on earth. Can't we? Can't we do that? But Paul is saying here, no, 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 don't hold yourselves up in a monastery. What would, what would so many of us do if those who shared Christ with us had instead just constantly busied themselves only with their Christian community? What would you and I have done? You know, if we grew up in a Christian home, that's one thing. But I, I didn't hear about the grace of the gospel through, through my church as a kid. It was a foreign concept at least to my brain. They might have been trying a good job, but it just did not get through. It took, it took a, a Christian from outside my home to hold my hand and walk me through the truths of grace. And so many of you guys have stories similar to mine, right? What would you do if that person had just run off to the abbey, so to speak, shut themselves up with their, their Bible study, alone, only with Christians, purifying themselves? One of my best friends who was in my rock band with me in high school, he goes off to college and he gets involved with the campus crusade and, you know, all of a sudden he tells me he's found Jesus. He's born again. He's found the Lord. He will no longer partake in the evil deeds of wickedness. He's writing me a letter. I found Jesus. And, and I was so freaked out by this at first. You know, I was just like, what? Are we not going to be drinking buddies anymore? What's it going to be like? But something amazing happened though. He, he did stop getting drunk with me, but he didn't stop being my friend. He, he didn't stop loving me. Many of our, many of our own, mine and his common friends from high school, when this happened, they didn't want anything to do with him because he was now a Jesus freak. But you know what? Something inside me, I needed a real friend. I needed a real friend who, who knew who God was, who knew about a love that wouldn't let me go. Because I just, I desperately needed that. And suddenly I found this Jesus freak became the first real friend that I'd ever had in my life, really. Because our friendship wasn't centered around popularity or booze or being an Ivy Leaguer or competing for girls or getting rich or mocking all the kids who weren't as cool as me or even nice things like just being super artistic and wanting to be in a rock band. Not all this stuff is bad, but our friendship wasn't centered around that. 
it was still certainly about having fun. We still love music. We loved art. We loved Star Wars. We loved laughing our heads off. But I could tell he had a hope I did not have. And he opened his heart to me. He opened his time to me. And as I, as I engaged with him, there was something inside me. It was just like, man, I, I want this. And then I got to know his friends. I went to go see him in college, take some trips down to OU, Ohio University. And his friends, they weren't weirdos. <laughs> they were just... They were just kind. They were good people. There was a unity. There was a joy. There was a clarity. There was a purity. There was a humility. There was a selflessness about his friends that shone really bright. They were not perfect, but they were family around him. And they treated me like family in a way that said what the Bible says. In a way that said, Jesus is real. Something's going on around here. Like It was as Jesus said, their unity around Jesus made me see Jesus clearer. Their unity wasn't based around the worldly values I'd had, whether they were good or illicit. It was based around loving each other and caring for each other. But what would it have been if, if they had just run off to their holy huddle and shut the doors on me? What would it have been for some of you guys? So just take a second, consider your life. It, is there one person right now you can think of that maybe you can open the door of your life a little bit wider to? Perhaps it's someone God's already tenderizing with suffering, with loneliness, with some sickness, with some trial of hopelessness, with some increasing curiosity about what in the world is this life for and what in the world is going to happen to me when I die? Is there one person, at least, that you can open that door wider to? They might be across the cubicle. They might be across the classroom. They might be across the front yard. I don't know. But open the door. Ask God to help you open the door. Should you invite him to church? Should you not invite him to church? Should you invite him over to the movie? Should you watch a movie with him? Should you get a beer with him? Should you not get a beer with him? I don't know. I, we can, you can ask me. You can ask other friends. But the point is, like, start asking God to open the door. Don't worry about doing it perfect. And don't hide your hope in Christ. <gasps> if I say this, you know, don't, no need to rope them in under the pretense of some common interest of, like, football. And then six months later, when the time is right, say to them, say, football is wonderful, isn't it? You know who would be the greatest quarterback ever? Jesus. You don't, you don't have to do that. Just live your faith in front of them. Talk about your problems with them. And then say in a non-obnoxious way, but God's going to help. I have Christ, you know. You don't have to overdo it. Thump them. But don't be a coward. Don't be ashamed. Let them know in non-obnoxious ways, when needed, that you can't compromise your relationship with Jesus where you need to. There were things my friend Ken would do with me. We'd watch movies. We'd, you know. But there were other things he wouldn't do with me, like get really drunk. <laughs> like try dope. He, and I knew that. We, we just, I, he, he made it clear like there were just some off-limits things for him. Before I left that stuff. Well, I mean, I still have a glass of wine. I still have a glass of beer. But um, I don't smoke marijuana. But, you know, I, 
I'm not going to get into that, right? Laws are changing. But my point was, be who you are. Love God in front of them. And if God is at work with, in them, they won't go away when they see that. If God's working in them, they won't walk away from that. They'll be really compelled by that. Because the loneliness, the hopelessness inside of them will start to smell the aroma of something that answers that. They will just want to know why you have that kind of strength. They will just want to know why you'd be so different. And isn't that what Peter 3.15 tells us? It says, but in your hearts, Peter says, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Don't be ashamed of him, he says. Next breath. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Man, those are two of the most freeing evangelism words in the universe, right? Gentleness and respect. Don't go down to the mall with your turn and burn t-shirt on. It's not really gentle or super respectful. I mean, if that's a real conviction of yours, let's talk. But, but then, remember, honor Christ as Lord as holy. Don't be ashamed of him. Pray not to be ashamed of him. Paul sometimes had to pray. He had to ask the churches, pray I won't be ashamed of Christ. Because, yeah, Christians are maligned, you know? Like, we're looked at as, we used to be looked at as nerds. And when I was, like, younger, we were nerds and weirdos. And now we're straight-up bigots, like, in a lot of contexts. But God doesn't mind that. He knows how to work around that in the real people who really know you in real relationships. And if you don't act hateful about people and things that you don't agree with, you can disagree with love. Most people are savvy to that. They'll get it, that you're not really a bigot. You just have a different perspective. Now, maybe you don't know where to find this kind of person. You just, you're, you are closed right now. Or it's just your, your situation doesn't accommodate you. You know, I mean, the be, truth be told, I, I've not done such a good job with my neighbors. I've, I've, got, I've got some more work to do. We're working with, uh, well, I also, my job, I, I, I tend to spend a lot of time with Christians in my job during the daytime, phone calls, meetings with you guys with the elder team. It's a pleasure. But I don't, I don't have like a cubicle next to my cubicles. There's Joe Sixpack that I can talk to. But do you know that every day, if you're like that, every day, including Saturdays and Sundays, there's a little place about 10 minutes from here called the Frederick Rescue Mission and Faith House. And the Frederick Rescue Mission has breakfast and lunch for hundreds of people every day who come in there, and what all those people share is some level of misfortune. Don't know the score on culpability or hardship. Doesn't matter. They all come in because they need food that they can't probably afford on their own. And they need to find their meals in a mission. And you can sit down with them, and you can eat with them, and you will be surprised to find that many of them are very open if you will treat them with gentleness and respect to hearing your story of how God took you from hopelessness to hope. Because a lot of those people, what's great about the Frederick Rescue Mission in particular, is a lot of those people are interested in hope. They're not like surplus overflowing with hope, with degrees from Harvard and not just Lexus, but like Hondas. You know, they're not, they're not rolling in it. They don't have it together. There are a lot of broken 
people in a lot of broken situations. But listen, that might scare you. But if it does scare you, there is the most wonderful person in Frederick named Terry Kwitek. And she supervises those lunch ministries and those breakfast ministries. And she will hold your hand and teach you how to befriend these folks. And Lord, please help me to follow through on this promise. Very soon, Terry will be here to talk to us about Frederick Rescue Mission if I get my way. <laughs> and in, in, our, in our elder plan with priorities and vision, we're, the, the elders are graciously talking with me about some hopes that I'm hoping to be able to work about Frederick Rescue Mission Faith House here into our church a little bit more uh, a little bit with a little bit more um, clarity and intentionality with our leadership. But listen, you don't need a program to go to Frederick Rescue Mission if, if, if that's a place that you might be interested in going to. You can just talk to John and Deb Coleman right there about Frederick Rescue Mission because they serve there. You could talk to Nathan Weaver right there. Raise your hand, Nathan, because he serves there. And some of you already do. But my point is it doesn't have to be a Frederick Rescue Mission, but there, there are places to go. I don't know where the answer lies for you in terms of where to go to open that door, but I think we can count on this. If we ask God to bring us people before whom we can be a light, and if we know that's exactly what he wants for us to be, then we can count on him to answer that prayer. Right? If we begin to just ask God to bring us people before whom we can be a light, and if that's exactly what he wants for his people, then we can count on him to answer that prayer. But it brings up another question, which is, will we be ready for those people? We'll never be perfectly ready, but will we be marginally ready enough for those people individually and as a church? So we finish with our second verse here, verse 12. Go to the next slide. For what have I to do? This is Paul saying, listen, I'm not interested in, in you guys disassociating yourselves from the world. I'm talking about folks who are swindling and folks who are harming and abusing people in your church and spreading that in your church. Ask them to leave your church. If they won't repent, if they won't turn. These are people who, who claim Christ now. These are people who are professing Christians who are engaging in the practice of sin. And Paul's saying if they won't turn from that, ask them to leave the house. Because your house has to be ready for guests. You can't invite guests in and have the refrigerator slammed up against the kitchen floor and the rats running around. So he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not, isn't that those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. So Paul's asking them this rhetorical question. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Oh, this is such a powerful question for us. <clears throat> in, in Christianica, as, as Kurt Allen called it a few months ago, Americanity or Christianica. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying separation from this man in the church who was claiming to follow Christ, but following sin, separation was a warning on him. It was a judgment on him. It was a foreshadowing of what would happen to him if, after having committed his life to Christ, he's now abandoning Christ. Having accepted Jesus into his life, he was expected He was expected to be different than the world. That's what it means to join with Christ. You're saying, Jesus, I'm leaving the world in regards to sin, in regards to rejection and rebellion against you, and I'm joining with you, Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian. And I'm counting on the gospel to save me. (laughs) Not my ability to join you perfectly. It's a little big important point there. But my point is, that, that Paul and the church needed to have 
an expectation that this man would have grace and power to live right now. So they're calling him to account to live that way as a Christian should. But then Paul says, for all those other folks in the world who've never trusted Christ, who don't have the Holy Spirit, if you separate yourselves from them, it's a kind of judgment upon them. Why are you judging them if Jesus isn't ready to judge them yet? He wants to save them from judgment. But we can, we can kind of judge the world, can't we? Like, I don't mean, look, we have to be discerning and say that's not right and that's not right and this is right and this is the way. But we can judge people. We can judge people in a, in a condemning way. We can badmouth the crud out of whatever government authority or opposition party we don't like. Take your pick. I don't like Nancy Pelosi. What a woman. What a horrible woman. I can't believe Donald Trump. What a horrifying person. That's, that, that happens in our hearts, right? I'm not saying don't fight for justice or don't stand up and look, some of the most honorable Christians in history, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, died in a, in a prison standing up against what many Christians didn't stand up against, what Hitler was doing. So I'm not saying don't fight for justice or don't get involved politically where you sense a call. I'm not, I'm not talking about this issue. I'm not saying that we don't hate racism. We should hate racism. We should hate abortion. We should hate those sins. But there can be in our age, right, in our country right now, there can be such a spirit of hatred. I'm talking about hatred for people in power. I'm just using people in power as an example. You can use other folks at work. But there's a, a hatred in so many professing Christians, you'd think they'd rather see Nancy Pelosi captured and thrown in prison than captured by the love of Christ. I mean, that's what, that's what you get if you go on Facebook and you look at some of the professing Christians' Facebook pages and what they're saying. You'd be sure. You'd, you wouldn't hear a single word about praying for Donald Trump. But you'll see all kinds of things about what a horrible human being he is. I'm not saying... Listen, I'm not advertising for Donald Trump, Okay. But I'm just saying, if anyone had the right to criticize the authorities around him, it was Paul. Because he lived in the Roman Empire, and he would be beheaded by the mad and wicked Nero. What did Paul say about the authorities around him? In 1 Timothy 2, he says, when you're in church, make sure you pray for the authorities. we got to start doing that, folks. A little tangent. We've been reading a book as an elder team called The Deliberate Church. And I'm, it, it's been really, really great for our team. And, and we're working on um, what I like to call a bold, bold. We're working on a vision for our church. And I like to call it a bold, old vision. <laughs> I hope our vision for the church is as old as dirt. I hope it's as old as the Bible. That's what, that's what we want. We want a vision as old as the Bible. And one of the old visions in the Bible is that we'd pray for our leaders. We'd pray for Nancy Pelosi. We'd pray for Donald Trump. And guess who we're really different from when we do that? Can you put up that photo, Brando? This happened uh, a couple weeks ago, right? A week ago when dear Barbara Bush passed on. Isn't that Amazing. I mean, I don't know what's going on in the hearts of those people, but it almost makes me want to cry. I mean, that's kind of a picture of heaven to me. People who spend a lot of time tearing each other, tearing each other up. But something happened that's 
freaked them all out and sobered them up for a second and made them realize what's really important. And what do they do? They all get together and put their arms around each other and they hug in a picture. And I don't know what's going on in Michelle or Melania's heart and mind, but I really like to think they're thinking, oh, this is much better. This is so much better than where we usually are. I like to think that that's what George and Hillary, I, I, bet, I think George and Hillary are friends already. I don't think they even have to try. I think they're buddies. But, but what is so crazy about that picture? It's not what the world's like usually, right? It's not what the world's like. And so what should the world see from us? They should see that kind of spirit all the time. They should see that kind of spirit all the time. In our hearts about people we don't agree with. Paul says, honor the king. He says, act as if you thought God was in control, was going to set things right. And therefore, you could love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Filling up social media with judgment on how evil Nancy Pelosi is or Donald Trump is without one word of prayer for them. Filling the world with our negative grumbling and speech. Folks, Facebook is, an, is, a, is a coliseum of people witnessing who you are as a Christian. And what you do there matters. And if they read more about what you hate and what you want to tear down and what you think is wrong about this place, then they read about the answer to hopelessness that who doesn't matter who's in power. Hopelessness will continue. If that's what they know about you, how are you being a light to the world? Social media is an incredible opportunity for us to be a light. Be a light. And I know many of you are. To some degree, I know I'm preaching to a lot of the choir here. But my point is, filling the world with our negative grumbling speech is not being a light. God would say to us, don't judge the world. Judge yourself. Church, don't judge the world like that. Judge yourself. Get hatred out of your heart. Yes, there are times with, there are relational difficulties. We can't. You know, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. I know there are people in your life, there are people in my life, and sadly there's brokenness. And you, you can't be buddies necessarily like you, you'd like to. But you can pray for those people. You can love them. You can, when the hatred wells up in your heart, you can say, no, that's not Jesus. And Paul's saying, don't be like the world like that. The world's in darkness. What do you expect it to do? You have the light of the world. You should look like it. Mind your own soul. Mind the soul of your brothers and sisters in your church and let me judge the world, God says. You don't judge it. Be a light to it while there's time. In another place, Paul says it this way. He says this in Philippians 2. Do all things, do all things. Oh, this is such a hard thing for Americans to hear. Do all things. So hard for me to hear. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. And innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom. Now, Paul's not trying to judge the world and say, get away from those crooked and perverse people. He's saying those folks who are walking away from God and walking into an eternity with God. You want to appear among them. He says, among whom you appear as what? As lights in the world. Holding fast or holding forth the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul's saying, hey, don't waste all my time with you people. Don't, 
Don't let me have ministered to you, little church, in vain by taking what I've given you and trashing it. So what do we learn from chapter 5? Because we're going to close down chapter 5. But man, I, I know chapter 5 is one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. But I have gotten so much out of this. I, I, I feel like I've gotten such a basic blueprint, again, like refreshing on what the church is. And I'm really hoping that you guys have. If you haven't listened to the other two messages, please go back and listen to those messages. But just to sum up, what we've learned from chapter 5, we've gone Columbo on it. And we've seen that the church is a bride. And therefore, following Jesus means it means... It means more than leaving sin. The gospel isn't for for forgiveness. It's the gift. I'm sorry. It means more than being forgiven of sin. The gospel is the gift of a new life to be a pure bride for our savior. Not perfect, not perfect, but earnestly pursuing that. And so let us even this morning, even this morning, ask the Lord, purify us of greed Purify us of being a people who put our hope in money and possessions and never have enough. And listen, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. There are, gonna, there are rich people in this world who, who aren't owned by their possessions because they've got hearts of generosity. You can just be a poor person who believes in your heart that your security depends on money and possessions instead of God. And let's ask God to purify us from swindling, from stealing or being dishonest with our finances or treating others in ways that exploits them from our wealth if that's happening. We talked a little bit about that last week. Work your hours at work. Billable hours. Treat your employees well or your boss well. Let's ask the Lord to purify us from slander. Are we spreading or believing gossip, negative talk, instead of closing our ears and, and either saying, no more. Have you gone to that person? And why am I involved? In, and, then, and then saying, I'm going to go to that person with my questions and not my judgments. This is really important for me. It's really important for you for our church in this season. We need to guard each other against negative talk about one another. Spreading gossip, condemning speech, falsehoods. That's why we, partly why we did the, the reconciliation sheet at the solemn assembly. And that is in your email tray as of last night. And we'll talk about that. Lord willing, we're going to talk about some of that stuff more in, in the future. But let me just say another thing about social media. Facebook, Twitter forums can be an absolute terrible place to roam with an unwatched heart. So much negative talk about people that you have nothing to do with. <laughs> and you, you'll write, we'll write stuff about these people or we'll read stuff condemning these people. We don't even know these people. Whether they're Christians or non-Christians. God says we have to give an account for every careless word. I think he means every careless word we speak or every careless word we read, every careless word we tweet. Sexual morality. Are there things that we're watching? Are there shows that we're watching? That, hey, the world thinks is fine. But it's not fine with your heart. You know when you watch that show and you're a guy and you see what you see that it is not helping you love, have only eyes for your wife. You know if you're a gal and you're married, it's not helping you have only eyes for the one God's given you, your husband. If you're single, oh, God bless you. God says the most, God says we're supposed to be a peculiar people. Folks, in terms of sexual morality, we have an option to become just much, much more peculiar. <laughs> As the, as the years roll on, don't we in this nation? I mean, to be a virgin in your mid forties, it's like the weirdest thing in the universe to the world. They made a movie about it because it was such a weird thing. 
It's not weird to God. It's obedience. And if you're not, it doesn't matter to God. Just come and ask his forgiveness and strength. He erases sin. He bears it and takes it away from you and grows you. But, but are there things that we're engaged in in terms of sexual morality that the world would say is fine that you know God forbids? Clean up the house. Let's make this house a nice house for people to come into. Make it a place where we're cleaning our hearts so his Holy Spirit has more room so that when people come in, they see more of the Holy Spirit than our trash. We're a body. Secondly, we're a body. And therefore, following Jesus means being part of an identifiable community that looks out for each other. Listen, I'm not ashamed to say I believe in church membership. I believe in pastors. I believe you all should be part of a local church in good times and in bad times. Faithfulness. You guys are amazing. I just went to, I had a, I had a group of folks, of leaders over to my house two weeks ago. And all I could say to them in that meeting was thank you. Thank you for serving this church in a season of trouble, in a season of poverty, and in a season of weakness. We looked at three different passages from Scripture that talk about how God honors those who serve in the midst of trouble, those who serve in the midst of poverty, and those who serve in the midst of weakness, and how valuable that is to God. Because it is a little bit easier to serve in a season of plenty, isn't it? But your heart is revealed when you're still serving. You're still trying to be faithful to God's people in the midst of trouble, poverty, and weakness. And that's what all of you guys are doing in this church. And if I don't have you over to my house over pancakes or one of those nights to say it, I just want you to hear it from me right now. God is pleased. I'm not trying to trap you in this church, but it is meaningful to God. Just as those two pennies were, that woman served in poverty. Just as those five loaves and three fishes were, that little boy served in the midst of weakness. When, when, when David offered a sacrifice to God and he said, I'm not going to give to God what cost me nothing. He made sure he bought this threshing floor upon which the sacrifice would be offered. It mattered to God that David tried to serve God in the midst of trouble. So thank you. Thank you for how you guys have tried to express to each other in the midst of this season the faithfulness of God. And without, without Lord willing, being purified agenda, let me tell you, God is pleased, and I appeal to you to keep doing that, to keep doing that. It is not God's normal desire and plan to wreck his churches, and I don't think that's what he wants to do here. Keep at it. Let's keep serving and keep being a church. But the saving work of this church can only be done, the saving work of this church in Corinth, coming back to this passage, could only be done through a local community of believers that were committed to each other, it could, the saving work that happens in 1 Corinthians 5 is profound. There's a guy, who, the work that they're going to do can only be done by a group of believers who are committed to each other to obey Jesus. They took a guy who was walking away from God and towards hell. And they bound together and they said, no, you can't do that. And they said, no, in the strongest way possible, in a severe way possible, in a really tough love way possible. They threw him out of the church. But the whole point, Paul says, was so that his soul may be saved, so that he would be woken up. And when we read in 2 Corinthians 2, that's exactly what happens. That guy gets the cold water splashed on his face. He comes back to that church, and Paul yells just as loud as he does in this chapter. He says, you forgive that guy, you hug on that guy crazy, and you make sure he knows he is loved 
But you know what? It's something from Nark Dever's book. That kind of, that kind of church discipline, that's like surgery. Like that's like, you don't want to have a lot of surgery. Normal church life, normal church life should be like a healthy diet, good sleep, healthy exercise. Normal church life should not be expelling people from your midst. It should be getting in God's word and truth together. It should be worshiping together like we're doing right now. It should be praying together like we do sometimes on Wednesday night. It should be encouraging each other to care for our marriages, to care for our kids, to care about the poor and the suffering and the lost and praying for each other's needs. It should be, yes, it should be graciously asking questions. We got a concern about each other with questions, not with judgments. And then if needed, gently correcting each other in humility. If we're doing those things honestly and often, if we're doing those things honestly and often we will see church discipline done honestly and rarely. See, if we're practicing the healthy diet of church life, then the surgery doesn't have to happen very often. But I do hope that you get a sense of the importance of local church in this passage. When we look at this, this incredible responsibility placed on your life and my life in this church, I marvel at the incredible stewardship through this chapter that God gives a local church on earth and how we should really tremble at the weight of it. I mean, God, this guy in this chapter, chapter 5, who is in this immoral relationship, listen, God could have stepped in and shaken up that guy on his own. God could have made Paul step in and in God's name as an apostle done the shaking on his own, right? God could have done that. He could have swallowed up the earth and nobody would have had to do anything about it. No, the Lord, listen, God refused to sidestep his church's role as his body. He wasn't going to let them get out of growing up. To do the job he called them to do. To mature and man up. The church would be God's discipline of saving. God's means of disciplining and saving this men. And so here is an implicit call for us to watch out for each other. And so if you're in this church, I'll say it again. You are not only here to be served, but to serve. You are not only here to have your soul cared for, but to care for other souls. You're not only called to get encouragement, but to give encouragement. You're called to help each other. Be a pure bride, a joyful bride. You're called to help each other make this a beautiful room for people to come into who need the Savior. You're called to help each other be a light for this world. And that's the final conclusion. We are a light. Following Jesus means staying in the world, not leaving it, in order to save the world and not judge it. Following Jesus means staying in the world and not leaving it, in order to save the world and not judging it. So no holy huddles only. Yes, holy huddles. We have to have holy huddles, right? Every football game needs a halftime. We have to get back in the locker room. Hear the coach's directions, that coach. Get the orange slices and the Gatorade. Enjoy each other. Enjoy him. But it's not time to seek our private heaven on earth right now. We pray, God, bring your kingdom. We don't say we're going to establish the kingdom fully on this earth, God. You just hang out there in heaven. We'll tell you when it's ready. No, God says, be a light right now where there is no heaven, where there's only encroaching, increasing steps towards hell. And what's our hope for doing all of this? What's our hope for, for being a bride, for being a body, for being a light? What is it? It's the very first thing we looked at the beginning of this message. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
that's where all this comes from, right? Christ has been sacrificed. Christ has been sacrificed so you can do this. So I can make progress. Christ has been sacrificed so I'm not doomed to be stuck in my old ways and my old patterns. They show up every morning. They tug at my heart every moment. But Christ has been sacrificed. And so God is not counting my sins against me anymore. God is not looking at me with, a, with his hands folded saying, Oh boy, get your bootstraps pulled up and you better get your act together. No, God is saying, Albert, I've, John, Deb, Mark, everybody, I have taken your sins away from you. The sins you'll commit tomorrow, I'm not going to hold them against you. All I've got for you is a throne room open. Your father's lap to crawl into and ask for my help, ask for my grace, ask for my mercy. If you will believe me for it, I will give it to you. If you will trust me for it, I will give it to you. Even a mustard seed of faith in a big room of doubt is enough. I'll give it to you. Right? He's not looking for perfect people. He's not looking for people done with sin practically in this world. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a Savior who died for us. That's why Paul says, I don't... This is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2. It's one of my favorite verses of all time. I need to sing it to my heart every half hour. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. I don't set aside the saving work of Jesus. I don't ever set aside the gospel. Because if righteousness could be gained, if, if perfection could be gained by me obeying God perfectly, by me observing the law, Paul says... And Christ died for nothing. Then I'm missing the whole point. Yes, we struggle with sin. This should be a place safe for people who struggle with sin, who fight. This should be a place where we can come to each other and say, man, I, I'm struggling with this. And we can say to each other, thank you for confessing that. You are forgiven. God forgives you. God forgives you. But it should not be a place dominated and controlled by it such that the room is horrible and people don't want to come and, and, and we can't bring new people. So let's, in the right sense, judge ourselves. Let's look at our hearts. Let's ask God for help. Let's, let's make this house clean to be a beautiful room to bring people in. We got more work to do on that. We got more things to talk about. I feel like starting a whole new sermon that I'm not prepared to give, but, but let's just start with that. That's what we want to be doing, right? Amen. Amen. Well, you guys, thank you so much for listening to my long sermon. I'm going to ask Holly if she would come up and pray for us and, um, and then we're going to dismiss. Holly, would you close us in prayer? And Glenn, can we get that mic working? So right before I pray, um, Albert, I just, you know, you, you're so good at encouraging us. I mean, we've, <laughs> the church that claps, we did a lot of clapping today and, um, you know, you have encouraged us for those who have been expressing the faithfulness of God and, and still serving in the midst of trouble and reminding us that God is pleased. And in all of those things, thank you, brother, for serving us in the midst of trouble. And God is pleased. And thank you for your expression of his faithfulness to us over and over again. So thank, thank you, you, Holly. Appreciate that very much. It's an honor and a pleasure. It's an honor and a pleasure. And I don't do it yeah. just for this, but, but you guys are doing it. You don't get a paycheck. <laughs>
and I do. But that's, I hope by God's grace, that's not why I'm doing it. But, yeah. but I just wanted to say what, what means so much to me is seeing all of you guys do it for free. Greg and David and John and Glenn and Deb and Christina and Amanda and you, Holly. Well, Lord, um, we thank you. Lord, it, it is easy um, to come into your gates with thanksgiving. It is, it is easy when we are reminded of the depths of your mercy and all that has been done on our behalf. Um, that we come to you as your children and you, you tell us to come boldly and expectant. Not because of anything that we bring, but because of everything that you've done. Because of what you've already done. When we are yet sinners calling us in. And you've made us lights of the world. You, that's who we are. We, we are light. And so, God, we, we pray that by your grace, because of your mercy, you would help us to... Um, expel those things that would tempt us to hide your light that we are. That you would put people in our lives that need to see your light, that need to hear your truth. That you would do that and that we would become, continue to become who you have made us to be. And God, we know that's where the deep joy comes from. Participating in this amazing plan that you have for this earth that you have called us in to play a part of, each one of us, uniquely gifted to shine your light before a world who so desperately needs to see you. So God, would you do that? Would you continue to purify us? Would you continue to give us the joy of our salvation, of who we are, who we've been called to be, what we belong to? In this invisible kingdom, Lord, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, all that you are doing, continuing to do, and all that you promise to do as we continue to walk forth in this vapor in which we live for your glory and our eternal good. Amen.